0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Well, I woke up with a bit of a hangover, to be honest. I'd had uh, some bubbles the night before and I realised that I had a pretty busy morning. I was really excited to see Richard. He was uh, in this rally, and it was something he'd really been looking forward to, and I couldn't wait there to be with him. He'd arrived the day before, so I I wanted to join him and our friends and kind of celebrate that moment with him. So I was uh, aiming to get there just early afternoon, just as they were coming to the end of, of the race. He loved cars from when he was a kid. Cars played a really big role in his life and in the back of his mind this had always been something he wanted to try. Not to be a rally car driver himself. I think he was best placed where he ended up for this race as a co-driver and I remember he he showed me through the kind of the list of the directions and the coordinates that he needed to give to his driver friend and it it was so intricate, you know, tree here on the left, sharp right... Uh, bend in the road, uh, dip in the road, those kinds of things. So it was very much attention to detail, which was Richard all over. So it really, really suited him. I spoke with him at around 10.30 that morning. I gave him a quick call. It really was about a minute and a half just to say, hey, I'm on my way, can't wait to see you. And uh, yeah, and, and he said, I love you. And I said, I love you too. And that was it.
0: Welcome to Days Like These. I'm Elizabeth Colas. After reading that phone call, Caroline Winter is set to drive the couple of hours from her home in Adelaide out to Robertstown. She's going to meet her husband, Richard, at the finish line of his first ever rally car race. But that's not how the day would unfold. Instead, Caroline's life as she knows it changes completely, and she's faced with a new reality, one that she'd never imagined for herself.
1: So we met in 2004. We were both working in radio in Albury on the border of New South Wales and Victoria and we just grew into a beautiful friendship while we were both working there and eventually we became an item and I don't think I'd ever met a man or even really a person who would sit and listen quite like Richard would. He was really funny, really sort of wry sense of humour and he was also very Honest and, and humble, and so, yeah, I fell in love with him for all of those things. The drive to Robertstown is uh, around two hours, so I jumped in the car after having breakfast and just cranked up the radio for a bit as I was getting out of town. It was a beautiful, uh, crisp winter's day. It was blue sky, the sun was shining, but it had that real chill in the air. I was driving up what's called World's End Highway, of all the names in the world, and I just turned off into the uh, sort of a gravel driveway into Robertstown Oval. So you don't actually hit the town, it's just the oval that comes off the side of the road uh, where I was going to meet them. So I turned into the, the gravel road and I was a bit you know, unsure, am I in the right place? And then I sort of realised that I was, I could see the oval in front of me. And there was a couple of police officers and they sort of waved me down. And at the time I thought, oh, that's a bit weird. And then I laughed to myself and thought, oh, God, Richard's told them to look out for my, you know, my little Ford Fiesta. And uh, I was mortified thinking, you know, that is something that Richard would do anyway. And so I was sort of smiling to myself and pulled over and wound down the window and, one of them said to me, oh, "Are you are you Caroline?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I am." And they said, "Oh, okay. We we just need to talk to you for a minute." And so I um, I turned, I, I pulled my glasses off. I had my sunglasses on. I, I turned to put them on the passenger seat, and I I did still didn't know what was going on, but I just it's like I felt something, and I turned around and opened the car and sort of stepped out of the car, and. Uh, the police officer said, uh, something's happened. They'd said something like, there's been an accident. Your husband's had a heart attack. I said, well, OK, well, well how is he or where is he? You know, take me to him. And the other police officer said, um, you know, the, the paramedics did everything they could, but I'm, I'm sorry. Um, they, they couldn't save him. And I just, that that moment where you see it in the movies that everything just starts swirling and everything's blurry and sounds uh, are muffled and nothing sort of makes sense and I just remember screaming at them and I, I just crumpled and I slid down the side of my car and, and just in complete shock. The paramedic came over and sort of talked me through what had happened. Uh, I think that because the uh, the heart attack he had had was so big and so damaging that there wasn't actually a lot they could do. So I asked if I could see him and they told me I couldn't. And when I asked why, and they said that he had been taken to a nearby town and he was in a... Uh, a building there I think it might have been the church and that the coroner would need to take his body uh, for investigation because he'd had this episode in uh, sort of unusual circumstances. The th- first thing I thought was you can't leave him there on his own he doesn't like the cold he was he was such a sun chaser every time I would you know lose him in a shopping center I'd find him outside. You know, standing there, just getting some sun on his face, he he hated being cold, and so I, I felt really upset that he was he was lying there on his own. There was so much running through my head at that point, like and and probably the the thing I was hearing over and over, like a broken record, is is sorry you you what sorry sorry what what are you, sorry what are you saying? Sorry, what? I just, I, I could not wrap my head around the fact that they were saying that this thing had happened and he was just gone. One of the paramedics walked over with a, a plastic bag with his watch inside. And that was the first moment where I, I had this tiniest part of me just went, oh, maybe, maybe this has actually happened. Like, maybe, maybe, I'm still not convinced, but maybe. It was, there was that moment, it was his watch and it was no longer on his wrist. Now it was in a plastic bag. And uh, so I had, yeah, I had a green bag full of his clothes and a plastic bag with his watch in it, but no Richard. Getting home, wow, that was, that was hard. I just remember opening the door and the house was dark and I just sat down on the couch and I just couldn't even move. His briefcase would be just leaning up against the table that we had there and it was just there when he left it on Friday. It hadn't moved and upstairs in our bedroom there were little trinkets and some coins on his bedside table just where he'd left them and in the cupboard were all his shirts neatly lined up and his pants just sitting there, super silent. And I just had this realisation that all of those things would just remain exactly where they were. People just came. People just turned up, knocked on the door. Flowers arrived, cards arrived lots of lasagna arrived. I talked a lot to him during this time. I'd find myself wandering around the house, literally talking to him. And I'd say, oh, gosh, you can't believe how many people are downstairs and someone just dropped something on the rug. I know you're going to hate that. It's all right, I'll clean it up later. Richard's funeral was Beautiful. I chose to have it at a winery. Uh, He loved good wine and it seemed fitting for someone like him, and hundreds of people turned out. And we had some good wine and some good food. Not that I had any of it, but everyone else enjoyed it. And there were so many people that came. It was overwhelming actually. There were his school friends who he was still very, very close to all these years later, the gang. There was his radio mates from years ago and newer radio mates from these days. He had lots of cousins and uh, loads of um, uncles and aunties and nieces and nephews. Uh, There were some people who came along sort of on the periphery, friends of friends, but people who knew him not particularly well but really wanted to pay their respects. Uh, one of those people was Drew. He was there to pay his respects to a staff member, being me, who'd lost their husband. You know, there wasn't a sense of closure after the funeral, and a lot of people say that, you know, that helps in the process, or sometimes it is closure, but not not for me, No. I think that that first night of being on my own in my house after the funeral, after all the lasagna had stopped coming, after the flowers had died, that was that first moment where there was a little bit more of a realisation that I was, I was on my own now. I'd go to the shops and buy food for one. I'd wash up the dishes and there'd just be one plate and one fork and one knife I didn't even need to use the dishwasher anymore. Things that seemed like they didn't have any meaning suddenly had the greatest meaning in the world. So, you know, I'd go to the supermarket and pick up, you know, a particular cheese and realise that that was something we had at a picnic together once. And that suddenly became the biggest cheese in the world. The nights were difficult. When the lights go out, and all you've and got are you and, and a dark room, room and your thoughts.
0: I, if we could come in
1: for a I didn't want to be anywhere near my thoughts. So I went out and I bought a TV. Richard would have hated that. I bought a TV for the bedroom. In fact, when I did it, I apologised profusely to him, repeatedly. <laughs> I had absolutely no idea what to expect in the grief that I was going through and would continue to go through. And the one thing I had thought was that there were five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. So firstly, there's actually not five stages of grief, there's so many more. The other thing I I had no idea would happen is that you can experience those five stages of grief in any order or at any time. You know, there'd be a day where I would spend the whole day angry and then right at the end I'd feel, you know, somewhat depressed and sad or I'd go through five stages of grief in almost under a minute or you'd, you know, perhaps get to bargaining and then go back to denial or then accept a little bit of it and then go back to denial. It was topsy-turvy, it threw me around, it felt like it was never going to ease up, that this was going to be the rest of my life. And the other thing that I found that was really tied up in there was guilt. There was guilt about everything. I remember, the, you know, in the early days, I didn't want to eat when I first found out. And about three or four days in, someone said to me, well, you're going to have to have something to eat. And but I thought, but I shouldn't, in my head, I thought, well, I can't eat. Richard can't eat. So I'm not eating. Or if I, you know, if I went somewhere that we hadn't been before together, I'd be guilty because I'd gone somewhere new that fell into the after-Richard category, not the before-Richard category. I found this global Widows forum, which sounds awful, and I remember thinking, Widow, that's not me, that's someone else. Anyway, let's dive in, and I found myself just reading other people's stories and posts. I didn't ever share anything, But it just made me feel comfortable to know that I wasn't alone. I went to a psychic. I'd always been interested and had a belief in the spiritual spiritual world before and thought, well, you know, if there's any way that I'm potentially going to connect with Richard again, it's going to be this. And I was really dubious too because Richard wasn't in that world. He didn't believe in that kind of spirituality. You know, some would probably say well, that's what you needed to do at the time and maybe they told you something you needed to hear. But I believe and I had a couple of moments where I felt he came to me and that mattered to me more than anything. I spent some time with a counsellor, which was so important. I felt like that was someone who could help just put my thoughts in order. I started to feel a bit braver about about entering the world again and what this new after Richard world looked like. I I joined a different gym. We'd been at a gym together. So I joined a different gym and it had a spa and a sauna and I felt, well, I deserve to treat myself a little bit. I uh, tried yoga and I absolutely hated it that was okay. And I got back into running. So I started to take care of myself physically and mentally a lot better. Uh, I was still drinking wine though. I drank a lot of wine and there was no judgment from me. There was judgment from my dad though, bless him. He eventually told me to stop. So I uh, pulled it back. I started saying no to things if I didn't want to do them. Um and that was so liberating. I really felt like I had I'd found a superpower. that I started to feel a little bit like me again. A friend that I'd had for a long time, her sister had lost her husband just a few months before I'd lost Richard. And she kind of set us up on, a, I guess, a blind date. And so we went out for dinner uh, in a very public restaurant in the middle of Chinatown. And for four hours, we just shared stories and we cried at the table and we hugged. I think one of the things about going through this is it all seems so ethereal and airy-fairy and nothing was concrete or practical. And he or she was saying, well, this is what you, you might expect that... You know, at some point you'll wake up one morning and go, OK, I'm going to, you know, change what I'm doing this way and that's OK and I'm going to be, you know, comfortable about it because, you know, this is part of my journey in repairing. And so she'd give me sort of those sort of practical thoughts about what was going to happen and, and that made the world a difference. And I do remember leaving after and I was on a high I remember leaving the restaurant and thought, oh, I made a new friend and and so, you know, I went, to, I went to kind of call him and say, oh, I had this great night and I met this person but you're never going to meet her. It was very strange. Tripping up is, is the precise um, word for it. You, you'd feel that, you know, I was taking two steps forward and then suddenly I wouldn't see that crack in the road. Oh, shit, that's right. You're not here. So I went to Melbourne to see some very close friends of ours who couldn't make it to Richard's funeral. And when I came home and the taxi dropped me off, it's almost like the sound of the taxi leaving is etched in my mind. And I went to put the key in the door and to turn it and to open the door... And this really strange feeling just flooded me as I walked through. And it was that realisation that this was the real crash. Everything else was a practice. And this moment caught me completely by surprise. So all those other little moments where I'd been tripped up were almost practice for this moment where I was going to trip and I was going to fall really, really hard. And I did, and I did, and I fell right down that hole. And I remember, I I remember the guttural cry, and that's really the only way to describe it, that that came after that moment. And it was that real realisation and that moment of acceptance, that that was, that he was actually gone and he actually was never coming back. There were people that would say, oh, everything happens for a reason and, you know, you'll move on, you know, it'll get better. And none of that is actually helpful because in my mind, not everything does happen for a reason although we might reason with it after it's happened. And importantly, I didn't want to move on because for me that felt like I was leaving something behind. I was leaving Richard behind and that was my life. And so I made a really conscious decision not to ever move on but to move sideways instead. I realised that if I moved sideways, it meant that I didn't have to sort of cut off what I'd had, that by moving sideways, I could bring Richard with me always. He could come with me when I went on overseas trips. He could come with me if I sold our house and moved somewhere else. I'd done quite a few things by then as well. I'd I'd sold his car and I'd sold our house and I'd moved into the city and I'd started going out more and I I was really starting to to feel more of my old self again and then there was this day and I can't for the life of me remember what it was what it was that someone said but then I laughed one of those huge belly aching kind of laughs you know the ones where you just you start crying there's tears rolling down your face it was one of those laughs and it was you know it was my stomach was hurting i was doubled over i couldn't catch my breath it was it was one of those amazing moments that i just knew then i was going to be okay that was the moment where i knew i was i was going to be all right I knew Drew from work because he was the man who was at the funeral who'd come along to support the staff member who'd lost her husband. But we didn't know each other very well. And I was trying to set him up with my best friend, and that didn't work. And we would just chat, just as colleagues, and I would walk past his office door and he would ask me how I was doing, obviously having known what what had happened and... You know that that grew over the the months, and we'd have you know longer conversations. And then one day we found ourselves out at a bar, and we just sat and chatted until two in the morning, and it was beautiful, and it was so strange because he was someone I didn't really know, but that he'd been in my my life in a in a sort of a fleeting way but that he'd come along and he'd heard all about Richard at his funeral. But Drew Drew knowing a bit about Richard for me meant that I didn't have this big elephant in the room and that I could speak freely about my past and how I was feeling and this man who I had loved and who I'd lost. And Drew would, would listen and ask questions and, and be supportive and he wasn't jealous, he wasn't competing. He was... He was welcoming of of me and you know my my new life where this this other person, this this other husband um would would come with us. And I think I've been very fortunate to find two quite incredible men. but they're very different. they're very <laughs> they're very different. Um, Drew is definitely not Richard. He's tall. And he's bald, and he rides a motorbike. And Richard would be horrified at that. And he likes water skiing, and he's a kite surfer. He's a total adventure guy, and he's a vegetarian. And Richard absolutely loved a steak, so he'd be horrified at that too. Uh, but but he is like Richard in that he's he's super kind, and he's loyal, and he's he's honest, and he's also a good listener, and he's he's funny, and he's smart. I think, though, most importantly, just like Richard, he loves me, and he loves me unconditionally. So we'd been seeing each other um, for quite some time, and then we decided to, to buy a house. We bought the house, and we picked up the keys. We drive over, and we drive around the corner, and there it is. It's our brand-new beautiful home for the two of us. It sits there on a corner, it's a white house and it it sits across the road from this cute little park. And so he pulls up and he gets out and he says, oh look, let's just, we'll just go and stand in the park and and have a look at the house from here and we'll do a little toast. And I said, oh, okay, seems a bit odd, but sure. And he says to me, I'm so excited about about this house. It's, it's just beautiful. And there's only one greater commitment than buying a house together. Will you marry me? And he pulled out a ring. And I, I was so shocked. I, I, I just didn't even know what to say. We hadn't spoken about getting married. I didn't think he'd want to get married. I didn't know how I felt about marriage. And I, I just burst into tears and said, Of course, of course I will. I'm a different person, but I'm still the same, if that makes sense. So the old me came back, most of me, but there was a new bit that, that I grew into, a part that I really, really love. And I would say from all of this, and it, it is hard to say, but it's true, that I'm, I'm actually happier than I've ever been.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Days Like These. If you've got a story you want us to hear, please send it to us, these at abc.net.au. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Coolas. Today's episode was produced by Lisa DeVisi on the lands of the Gadigal and Wurundjeri people. Sound design by Lisa DeVisi and engineering by Nathan Turnbull. The supervising producer is Sophie Townsend. Our executive producers are Sophie Townsend and Tom Wright. See you next time.
2: Like all obsessions, mine started small. I was obsessed with a man, a dead man, a famous crank, a madman, people said. When I was a child growing up in Hong Kong, his graffiti covered the city. He called himself the King of Kowloon. I was looking at him as a spectacle rather than prophet.
0: He was completely mad, completely bonkers. He was incoherent. He was certifiable. Only when you go crazy, you can see the truth. I'm
2: the king of this old graffiti vandal accused Britain of stealing the Peninsula of Kowloon from his family. He wrote of dispossession when no one else did. He became a celebrity artist, a fashion inspiration, a muse, and then a most unusual icon.
1: It's an icon, it's a legend, it's an incredible story of Hong Kong. There's a piece of memories
2: within all of us. For my generation, we all have a piece of him in our mind. I started my quest with a simple question, whether the old man really had a claim to the land. This took me on a journey I hadn't expected. It took eight years of my life. On the way... I discovered my hometown, then I lost it forever. In 2019, Hong Kong became unrecognizable. When the city exploded in protest, its people did what their king had done, covering the city's walls again with protest calligraphy. The city was in a fight for its life. My city is dying. It is at war with a much more powerful force than ours. It's a war on culture. How
0: will this end?
1: There's
2: really no
1: end. Unless they really want to destroy the city, they must adopt some compromise.
2: Then Beijing imposed national security legislation on Hong Kong. This outlawed secession, subversion, terrorism and collusion with foreign powers. People started disappearing... Critics stop talking. That
0: is hell that Hong Kong is in now. It is really a hell.
2: I was arrested quite many times. My crime is already written. If I stay in Hong Kong, I would not have a chance to defend myself properly. But in hunting for the king, I'd become an archivist of disappearance, capturing a place and its people before it vanished forever. The King had led me down this path. Now I'm telling his story. It's a story of madness, of loss, of disappearance and of reinvention. I'm Louisa Lim and this is The King of Kowloon. Join me on my journey.